Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. By chronicling 10 miracles in just two chapters, the Gospel author Matthew is not just listing raw displays of power. Rather, he is highlighting how the Good News Kingdom invites those from all walks of life into God's community. Let me remind you of this amazing statement. Jesus is amazing. Jesus is something to behold. And we're in the series that we're going through the book of Matthew, verse by verse, and we're calling this series the Good News Kingdom. Because what we want to see is that Jesus' ministry was not centered around coming for people to pray a prayer so they can escape hell and go to heaven. That was not Jesus' primary mission. In fact, when you look throughout the Gospels, Jesus' ministry is about the kingdom of God. The disciples' ministry was about the kingdom of God. Acts chapter 1 begins with Jesus speaking two disciples for 40 days about what? The kingdom of God. And guess what the very last verse of the book of Acts is? Paul is in house arrest, in prison, speaking about the good news of Jesus and his kingdom. And so what we're coming to see is that God has sent Jesus to bring his rule, his reign back to this earth that was actually taken from Adam by the serpents. And what we're seeing in Acts, sorry, Matthew chapters 8 and 9 is Jesus being absolutely amazing. And we've been walking week by week by this. And, I, and I, why I'm opening with this is sometimes as we keep going through these, I think we might lose the, the, the beauty of what he's doing. Like on this slide, I, we're walking through Matthew chapter 8 and 9, and there's 10 miracles And just to review where we've been, he heals the leper by touching. He heals the centurion's paralyzed servant through distance. Peter's sickly mother-in-law is healed of her uh, fever through touch. Jesus calms the stormy sea through speech. Jesus drives the demons out of the demonized man. And in the next set of five, Jesus heals a paralyzed man through a roof. Religious leaders' daughters are brought back to life. A woman who has been bleeding for years is healed. And there's two more miracles that end this section. Two blind men are healed of their blindness as they pursue Jesus. And then next week, we'll finish out the 10th one. I was trying to combine them, and it just didn't work out. And so we'll just do the ninth one this morning. But a few reminders of what we're actually seeing in these chapters, because uh, we made this statement a few months ago that it's really important not just to ask what Matthew is saying, but what Matthew is doing. Why does Matthew record these 10 miracles like back to back to back to back to back? And one of the reasons, one of the things we've come to see is that Jesus is mighty in word and in deed. We spent four years going through the Sermon on the Mount, and this is Jesus being mighty in word, declaring what the kingdom ethic is, what life under the reign of God actually looks like. 
And now we come to see right after the Sermon on the Mount, 10 miracles of Jesus demonstrating his power, his deed ministry. And he sets the example for the church that we should be powerful in word, in proclamation of the good news to people who don't know Jesus, to people who do know Jesus, to one another. But we should also be people who are powerful in deed, demonstrating the grace that has been brought to us in Jesus to other people. And we've come to see, number two, that when Jesus is demonstrating his power, he's not just doing naked displays of random powerful acts. Like Jesus didn't just walk around and be like, oh, you're, you're blind, let me heal you. Oh, we're on a boat with lots of waves, let me just calm the waves. What is Jesus actually doing in these miracles? He's actually demonstrating the kingdom of God is at hand. When God comes to be with his people fully and finally, and the kingdom is here in its fullness, what would life look like? Are there going to be blind people? No. Are there going to be people who have little faith and scared of stormy waves and creation ruling over us? No. Is the demons going to have the last word of terrorizing us and demonizing us? No. This is what Jesus is actually doing. He's demonstrating what the kingdom looks like when the kingdom shows up. And specifically, it takes people from all walks of life. I love walking through Matthew 8 and 9 together because you see men, you see women, you see young, you see old, you see Jews, you see Gentiles. You are seeing a, a broad scope of people who are struggling in very different ways of life. And in many of them, they're absent of what I'm going to call social capital. Guess what a, a leper had for a life? All of you uh, introverts are like, that's what I want. A life of solitude. No one could be around. No one wanted to be around the leper. An old lady who's sick... Not many people care about an old lady who's sick. And what you see is that Jesus is, is actually bringing people who are struggling outside, who are being marginalized, and bringing them into a place where they can actually experience life. And I want you to know that life is found in your relationships. The quality of your life is determined by the quality of your relationships. So that if your relationships are very strong and intimate, you have a strong, intimate life, even if you have no money. So Jesus is doing something in these passages. He's showing us that when the kingdom of God breaks in, it breaks down all the barriers, and it brings us all together. It brings the high and the mighty down, and it brings the low and people down here up. And we meet together in Jesus to be people who actually demonstrate the kingdom and the king has come. And this morning, we come to Miracle chapter 9, or Miracle 9 in chapter 9. Jesus heals the blind men. And I have on the screen for you the passage, and I'm going to read it together I'm going to read it for you. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. 
when, he had, when Jesus had gone indoors, the blind men came to him. And Jesus asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. And Jesus warned them sternly, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. This morning, I just want to walk through these, this short little miracle of their sight given to these two blind men and highlight just a few things as we walk through that text together. So, Father, we ask that you would come and show us the love that you have for us in Jesus, the beauty and the magnificence and the amazing reality of who Jesus is. May we be people whose hearts this morning, wherever they are, just be gravitated to Jesus to see how much life and joy and righteousness and peace he provides to us. So we ask these things, believing in faith that you'll do it. In the name of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, amen. The first thing I want to share with you this morning is two blind men are crying out and they make this statement, have mercy on us. And then church, what is that next phrase? Have mercy on us who? Son of David. Okay? You don't come up to me and be like, son of Mike, how was your week? Okay? You, none of you did that. If you did do it, you'd be weird. So why does... These two blind men, not called Jesus by his name, but declare him to be a son of David. When he's not even the son of David, he's the son of Joseph. Like, what is going on here? Why are they calling this man the son of David? The son of David in this time frame, in the first century when Jesus was existing, became a messianic title. In the Old Testament, the Jews believed that an anointed one, a Messiah, one that God had specifically designated a person, would come from the kingly line of David. In fact, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised David an everlasting king, an everlasting throne, and an everlasting rule. And so as this understanding of this divine rule being forever through the line of David began to be, uh, grow and understood more and more in the context of ancient Israel, there became this phrase, this idea of a son of David. One of David's sons is going to come. And he is going to bring to right what was wrong. He is going to restore and redeem Israel. And when this, these two blind men are declaring Jesus to be the son of David, they're actually making a claim about who this Jesus is. They're making a claim about his identity. They understand that this man is not just an ordinary man. He's not just the son of Joseph. He is the promised one that the Old Testament has been waiting for. And they have eyes to see that this is the son of David. In fact, Isaiah chapter 55 on the screen is a place where we see this understanding. And, and Isaiah re records this. He says, give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. 
I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My love promised to David, the covenant faithful one. See, I have made him, this David, a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the nations. And surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, because he has endowed you with splendor. What is Isaiah 55 saying? That there is coming a Davidite, one who will actually keep the covenants. Who is the only son of David who has faithfully kept God's covenants? That is this man, Jesus. And when he comes, what does Isaiah say he's going to do? Now, in the first century context, in the context that we are seeing ourselves, and we're going to deal with this in just a few moments, they believe that this son of David would come and set Israel free. They would come and remove the Roman oppression and bring Israel back to its glory. And, and I want to say, yes, that could be part of it. But the point of God bringing and sending Jesus to bring redemption and making Israel free from all of this oppression is for who? The nations. What God would do for Israel, he would do for the nation. What God did through Israel is for the sake of the nations. And God is saying one day through Isaiah, I'm sending a faithful Messiah, a faithful anointed one who would come, deliver Israel so that all the nations could experience the presence and the rule and the reign of God. And this is what should be going through their heads. This is what people should be hearing when they see these two blind men declaring and screaming to Jesus as he passes by, O son of David. Number one, two blind men identify Jesus as the son of David. Number two, Jesus ignores them. That sounds mean, doesn't it? But it's almost as if there's like this line and Jesus is walking and there's people over here yelling, oh, son of David, and Jesus just keeps going where? Right by. Like any of you parents have kids and your kids are yelling at you and you just ignore them and just walk right into your room and shut the door? That's what I thought of. Right? And so Jesus walks into the house, it says. Now, this is probably Peter's house. Remember earlier in the story in Matthew chapter 8, he healed Peter's mom. He's probably still there at Peter's house. But why did Jesus ignore these people? Ignore is probably not the right word, okay? But don't get mad at me. Why did Jesus just walk by? Church, Jesus does not work on our timetable. We saw last week when Nate did a, an excellent job of bringing out this passage of a little girl dying. Now, if you remember the story from last week, and if you weren't here, I'll just rehearse it real quickly for you. But there's this little girl who's dying, and this, the father comes to Jesus and says, my, my daughter is dying. I need you to heal her. And so what does Jesus do? He goes and deals with a woman who is not in danger of dying. She is not well. She's been bleeding for years. But he doesn't have to heal her at that moment, does he? Like, what would you and I do? If there was like a, not to be mean, a, or hopefully it's a chew in our kids' nursery right now, there's not a dying kid back there. And then there's like 
not the, I'm just going with the story, okay? An old lady up here who's been sick for a long time. Who are you going to go heal first? Who are you going to rush to first? Unless that lady is your mom, probably the kid, right? I mean, that's reality. I would be like, Jesus, my daughter is dying, and you're stopping to deal with this old lady who's been sick for a long time? Just hurry up. Do you see that? Jesus' timeline is not our timeline. We always want Jesus' timeline and my timeline to match up. And so maybe you've been praying for a long time about a prayer request, and Jesus seems to be over healing the woman who's sick. And you're like, I got a dying, sick child here, and your, your life is like in shambles, and it, it appears as if nothing is going right, and it seems like Jesus is just taking his time somewhere else. And you're like, Jesus, come here. And you feel like Jesus is turning your prayer request down. Now, most of us would just hear this. You know what? Jesus' timeline is not my timeline, so I'd better just trust him. Right? Okay? And I believe that. You better just trust him. You're going to trust in something. Might as well trust in him. But do you want to know what will actually nurture your trust? Do you know what Jesus had a prayer request turned down? It's not just you whose timeline gets interrupted, whose prayer requests don't get answered. Jesus himself had a prayer request turned down. Anyone remember where this prayer request was? In Gethsemane. What's his prayer request? I don't want to go to the cross. Take it from me. And what does Jesus end up saying? That's my desire. I'm going to do this will for you. And the book of Hebrews tells us that he endured that moment. Why? For the joy that was set before him. He understood God's timeline was not his timeline, but he trusted God knowing that going through that timeline, actually good would come from that. Church, you're not the only one who doesn't have prayer requests answered the way you want them answered. Jesus did. And this is what we see with these two blind men. You know, I don't know what you would have done, but if you were the blind men on the side of the road and declaring, hey, Jesus, heal me, heal me, heal me. Son of David, heal me. And he just kept walking by. What would you do? Bummer, I missed my chance. Or would you be like these particular blind men who are like, yeah, he didn't heal me right now, but I still know the only person I can go to to get healing is not at the temple. It's not through these people. It's through him. And so what do they do? They, in a sense, march right into the house where Jesus is. They come in desperation to Jesus, knowing that if they're going to actually be healed, this is the only place they're going to get healed. They're not just going to take no for an answer. They're going to actually walk into the place where Jesus is. Church, don't quit asking. 
Don't quit believing that Jesus is the only place, the only person where you're going to find what you need. It may not be on your timeline. It might not be an immediate healing. Jesus might be doing other things. But he is working. Keep going to him. In fact, this leads to number three. Keep going to him is an element of faith. And faith is what threads all of these ten miracles together. Matthew uses the word faith or believe about 14 times in 28 chapters. One third, over a third of those are used right here in this section. Why? Because he's highlighting something. Faith. <clears throat> Look, I have on the screen for you these five times that faith is used of the, in the ten miracles. The great faith of the centurion. I love this. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. The centurion, the Roman, or a Gentile or a Jew? is Gentile. And he's saying, this Gentile has more faith than I've seen anywhere. Or the opposite, the little faith of the disciples in Matthew chapter 8. You have little faith. Why are you so afraid? And Jesus got up, rebuked the winds and the waves, and was completely calm. This one's fascinating too, the faith of friends. Some men brought to Jesus a paralyzed man, as we saw in Mark, and he laid him down through the roof. And it's the faith of his friends on behalf of the paralyzed man that Jesus says, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Get up and walk. The faith of a bleeding woman to grab Jesus' clothes. Jesus turned and said, take heart, daughter. He said, your faith has healed you. And the persistent faith of the blind men. He touched their eyes and says, according to your faith, let it be done to you. Everyone who has received help in this chapter, has received it because of faith. Jesus demands your trust. Jesus demands your faith. Jesus loves when he hears from his followers that he can. This is the question he asks these blind men. Do you believe that I can? And they say what? Yes, you can. Nothing means more to Jesus than to be trusted. Do you believe Jesus can? Like, what is that prayer request in your heart right now that you're just saying, God, answer it? You all have one. I hope you have one. That you're just waiting for God to answer. And have you like pushed it so far back because he's not answering that you've just ignored it and let it go? Or maybe you think he's not answering because you're not being good enough. Or your faith isn't strong enough. And if my faith was stronger and my life was better and I was more obedient, God would be answering that prayer. you know what little faith can do? Matthew will tell you in a few chapters. He said, because you have so little faith, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. It's not the size and the strength of your faith that matters, church. It is the object of your faith. It is where you go to for your faith. You know what Jesus loves? He loves when you come to him and say, Jesus, 
I, I can't muster any, I, don't, I can't even understand how you can do this, but I know you're the only one who can do it. So help me believe. It's like I, we have this strange American pull yourself up by the bootstraps and have your stuff together mentality about our relationship with Jesus that we have in our everyday life. Come to Jesus weekly. Come to him in your weak faith. Come to him and confess your weakness because that is faith. And keep coming in your small weakness. Keep coming in your small strength. Because if you don't, you will be looking to something else to deliver. See, this is what happens with us so often is that we don't see Jesus answering it. And so we begin to not only deal with why he isn't answering, but then our faith begins to be transitioned to something else. This is not working for my life, so maybe if I can put my trust in over here and do this, this, and this, my life will be better. Whether it be a job where you're asking God you know, to do something and nothing is happening in your job and you're feeling like your life is meaningless, so then you start looking to a hobby for new meaning and new life. I don't know what it is. But don't miss the point that you are putting your trust in something to help deliver you from the evil and the, all this evil stuff that is experience, you're experiencing. And these blind men <clears throat> persistently come to Jesus and say, we believe you can. Now, what happens next is very strange. Jesus says, after they're healed, gives them a very weird command. Don't tell anyone. I thought the number one duty of a Christian was to tell everyone about Jesus. And Jesus here is saying, don't tell anyone about me. Now, half of us in this room this week probably would be thankful that it, that was probably the command straight out. Don't tell anyone about Jesus because we didn't do that this week probably, right? So we'd be thankful for that. But why does Jesus in this passage tell these two blind men, um, don't tell anyone? We call this we, <laughs> The, the scholars, the biblical scholars, we call this the messianic secrets. The secret about the Messiah. Jesus, at this point, seemingly, did not want his reputation to spread so farly and so vastly. He was trying to keep his ministry under wraps, if you will. He was not trying to make a big name for himself, yeah, I'm going to leave examples alone. But there's lots of Christians in America, pastors, who are trying to make names for themselves. And Jesus is like, I'm not trying to just make a name for myself. He wasn't trying to be some popular figure. If he was, he'd be like, go tell everyone. What was Jesus doing? The best reason I have found is this, is Jesus was trying to keep his identity on the down low because he knew that people would probably draw the wrong conclusions about his identity and his mission. The more his fame spread, the more wrongful ideas the nation would get of him. And what is this wrong idea that they would get of him? 
And it goes back to that phrase, son of David. They would get this understanding that Jesus came to be the son of David to relieve Israel from the oppression of Rome. That he would be this political military figure who would destroy all the oppression and bring Israel back to a place of prominence. You know who else made that mistake? Jesus' disciples. His very closest ones didn't understand that he had to die. In fact, Peter rebukes. Can you imagine Peter? I mean, this is just so silly. But can you imagine rebuking Jesus? I mean, can you imagine Jesus talking to you and you just tell Jesus, shut up, that's not right. That's what Peter did. Rebuking Jesus about what his identity and what his mission was. You know who else missed it? The entire nation, later in the book of Matthew, in the triumphal entry, he's riding on a donkey, and everyone is declaring what? Hail the king of the Jews. Hosanna. Glory to God in the highest. Here is our king. And Jesus is trying to keep this under wraps because everyone's getting this wrong understanding of what he came to do because not only is he truly the son of David, and trust me, one day he will ride back. And he will make all things right. And he will destroy all power and all oppression. And he will usher in an age of the new creation where God will come and dwell with us. And he will be the son of David. And he will do all of that. But what they missed is that he would be the suffering servant. They missed that Isaiah says that before he comes and destroys all the oppression and the power, he must go to the cross because church, there is a greater enemy out there than the Democrats. There's a greater enemy out there than the Republicans. There's a greater enemy out there than your spouse and your kids and your boss. The enemy that keeps you under deep oppression, that keeps this world under deep sin and evil is what Jesus had to come and deal with. In the same way, you and I need to embrace the reality of the son of David and the suffering servant. Jesus, when he came, did he heal everyone in Israel? No. But he came and we saw glimpses of what the kingdom of God would do when it breaks in. And I believe fully today that there are glimpses of God healing people in glimpses of the kingdom of God where these supernatural things occur. We're exercising, not running, but demons occurs. We get glimpses of the reality of the kingdom of God. But when God doesn't heal, does that mean God's not being faithful? God is unkind? No, because he will bring heal. He will, with his authority as the son of David, one day will come and bring healing to the nations. And he came first to let you know that your deepest enemy has been taken care of. Cancer is not your greatest enemy. Unemployment is not your greatest enemy. Being single is not your greatest enemy. Your greatest enemy is an evil dictator that, that what the Bible calls the adversary, who is constantly working against you, who is living proof, he himself is living proof, that there is evil in this world that is keeping you from experiencing wholeness. 
So Jesus gives this strange command. Don't tell anyone. And of course, good obedient disciples, new disciples of Jesus, what do they do? They can't wait to go out and just tell everyone what happened. Okay, and there's a big debate here if these disciples, if Matthew's highlighting their disobedience or highlighting the positive aspects. Um, what I think is interesting are two things. Number one, in the NIV, it says, after being sternly, sternly warned. This idea of being sternly warned has lots of emotion. This word is also used in the book of John when Jesus is weeping over Lazarus' death. It's like filled with emotion, this word. He's sternly warning him with lots of emotion. Please don't tell anyone. And the men are so overwhelmed with the incredible miracle that they have experienced that no amount of emotional appeal can keep them silent. I think Jesus is emotionally appealing to them because he doesn't want his fame to spread the way that it is going. He wants to control it so that people can understand who he is and what he came to do. But what we see out of these two blind men as they leave is this very important principle and I have a quote on the screen I'm going to read to you. <clears throat> and the important principle, this quote highlights it. It says, we delight to praise what we enjoy. Because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is appointed consummation. So it's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it's expressed. All enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. Unless shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. What does C.S. Lewis say? We praise what is valuable to us. We talk about what is exciting to us. And it's not just that you talk about what's exciting. It's that... You have to talk about what's exciting because as you talk about it, it actually makes the excitement be real. It consummates the joy of it. Like, I, I don't know what your new toy is that you're buying and waiting for. But whatever your new toy is, okay, one day I'm going to have a Tesla and all of you are going to know. Okay? You will all know. You can all hate me, and whatever. I don't care. I'm just, one day, well, who knows? That's a joke. But like, if I had a Tesla, you'd be knowing about my Tesla. Because just to keep it to myself isn't as exciting as to when I get to what? Talk about it. If you're married, you don't just keep this I love you within you and never tell your spouse you love them. It's in the fact that you actually say it to them that consummates the joy. And this is what we see in these blind men. They couldn't just keep inside of them all of this excitement. They actually, in order to like consummate the joy and bring the fullness of the joy and the fullness of what they just experienced, they had to tell other people. And that is a rule of life. So why do you and I obey Jesus' command, don't tell anyone? Because Jesus is not valuable. 
If he was valuable, guess what would be happening? The consummation of the joy of the Lord upon our hearts that only gets fulfilled when it is spoken. The question is, what do you love? This is why it's no wonder when you start talking to people, what do they love to talk about? Themselves. You know why? Because guess who they're really excited about? Themselves. We talk about ourselves because we're enthralled with ourselves. But it's also interesting, you know why you talk down about other people? Because you're enthralled with yourself. And putting down other people, gossiping. And of course, we don't gossip. We just speak truth behind people's backs. We're not spreading lies. That's gossip. But to put other people down as we talk consummates the joy of how great we are. Why do people say hurtful things to other people? Because they themselves have been wounded and to say hurtful things back that they think that will consummate the joy. That'll deal with the hurts. It's no wonder Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And Jesus is absolutely captivating and amazing and beautiful. And as we see the ethic that he has laid out for us of how life and flourishing relationships actually exist in the community of God in the, in the Sermon on the Mountain, as we look at all the ways that Jesus is just bringing wholeness and flourishing to his people, I want you to keep going to him. Keep saying as weakly as you can, Jesus, you can. Keep running to him. Keep asking him for faith. Keep running to him and asking him to help you to see how beautiful he is so that the overflow of our heart and our mouth would speak Jesus. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.